Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. Being behind bars is stressful enough. A prisoner's life is anything but safe and satisfying. What they need is God's Word to help bring them comfort and hope. But in one case, at least, that need is being challenged. Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine, is here to talk about a case of a Bible being thrown out of prison. Lincoln, what happened? It's an interesting story, but I need to add a preface to it. I'm sure some of our listeners have picked up since 9-11 that there have been much publicized cases of Muslim or Islamic prisoners demanding the rights to the Quran. Mm -hmm. And, of course, even in Iraq after the invasion, there were a number of highly publicized cases of CIA or American interrogators desecrating the Quran, depriving our prisoners of war, if you like, of access to their holy book. And I don't know how much sympathy there was in the general public to those news items. We paid attention because you don't want any person's faith to be restricted, and a belligerent attitude toward a prisoner is always dangerous because prisoners, by definition, have very limited rights anyway. But the Rutherford Institute are raising the alarm on a case that they have taken as a legal case, and it's called Weaver versus Bellies. Two interesting names, so I'm sure I'm mispronouncing them. (laughs) And the Supreme Court allowed a lower court ruling to stand. And what that involved was a certain prisoner, Conrad Heaver, again, a a name causing me problems, spelled Mm H-O-E-V-E-R, an inmate in Florida's Franklin Correction Institution. So he's no prisoner of war, not somewhere else in Florida. And who knows what he did? He was placed in solitary confinement, some sort of misbehavior, even within prison. He's a devout Christian. Whether he became a devout Christian after he was imprisoned or before is not really relevant to the civil liberties aspect of it. Mm -hmm. He has rights, even if he's acted in ways that might embarrass those that hold a similar conviction. But he's a devout Christian and uh, was interested in studying his Bible, actually had three Bibles. And when he was put in solitary, he asked that he could be given one of his Bibles to read. Seems reasonable in solitary. You can't talk anyone. You're under pretty close to 24-hour, I think it's 23-hour lockup. What do you do? Write on the walls or go crazy, you know? So he wanted his Bible. At first they denied it. Then he was given not one of his Bibles, but another Bible in Spanish, which I take as just basically worse than not giving him one. It's a slap in the face, like a mockery, because he did not read Spanish. He was there for 26 days, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Not able to read his holy book. So when he got out, he sued. And the case was taken up eventually by the Rutherford Institute, but it eventually went before the Supreme Court. And you know what they held? That his denial of a legible Bible was not a, quote, substantial burden on his right to exercise his religion, 
because he could not show that reading the Bible daily was a mandatory practice of Christianity. Hmm. Now, that's an incredible ruling, because we've often said on this program that religious accommodation doesn't depend on whether or not your pastor or your priest says that you're required or that church practice is this, that, or the other. It's a matter of are you conscience-bound for that behavior? You could be a minority of one, mm-hmm. but if your conscience compels you, then, then you're supp- it's supposed to be honored as, as best it can. Obviously, there are conflicting rights or realities, but without good reason, they can't deprive you of your right to practice your personal faith and your principles. So the fact that they say that there's no sort of mandate or dogma from his church to that, which and I'm sure many priests and pastors would disagree with you. You can't yes. really be a Christian without a Bible. This is true. This is true. <laughs> so uh, he was denied it. And the implications are phenomenal, as the Rutherford Foundation point out, and, and I've often featured articles by attorney John Whitehouse, who founded the Rutherford Foundation. He was once an extremely conservative figure and brought the Paula Jones case to court against then-President Clinton. But of late, he's very troubled by our loss of civil liberties in general, and in particular on religious practice. Not that religious practice is a threat, but on the margins, minority religious practice is severely being curtailed. And I'm giving all this a preface because in his material that he puts out, he states it in a very scary way. I'll read you his release. He says... America's prison population is growing. Laws criminalizing the most mundane activities are on the rise. States have a financial incentive to keep private prisons at capacity. And most people don't know that many prisons are run as businesses, private business. And the courts are inclined to side with law enforcement in matters of security. We would do well to keep in mind that whatever treatment is meted out to the least of these in our society is no different from how the rest of us will eventually be treated. And this is what he says then. In the government's eyes, we are all prisoners of the American police state. Oh, my. Yeah, that's loaded language, and you'd have to define that adequately. But the way I would put it, and I remember a quote that came out of Le Monde magazine in Paris after 9-11. It said, speaking of 9-11, it said that... uh, you know, we're replacing our view of freedom with something like a police state, and it says we're creating a terror of security. So in the name of security, many things, including religious activity, are already and more easily being restricted. You've mentioned this before, Lincoln, especially after 9-11, that a lot of our freedoms went away in the name of security. Is that not changing, or are we still going down, down, downhill on that thing? Of course. And I'm going to jump the rails here a little bit. But uh, even the news recently of punitive actions against illegals, I heard on the news today that they rounded up quite a large number of contractors running lawn maintenance and gardening businesses. And you and I and others listening see these people all the time, and you guess that a lot of them are uh, 
here irregularly. Yes. But they rounded them all up and are charging them with tax evasion, hmm. which I am sure is part of the mix. Yeah. But in the past, illegals, when they were rounded up, were evicted, yeah. deported back to their home. Now to turn it into a, a more criminal uh, charge is quite another thing. And most people will just sort of brush it off. It doesn't seem much. But behaviour that has not been acceptable to society, and in, and in the case of illegals working, I mean, the great irony is that the business class and the money class have encouraged this. It suited them just fine. Yeah. So they're complicit in this. But now to turn against uh, a whole category of people and criminalise it in the most severe way, where they basically can be charged, locked up, and, and held uh, at the loss of their liberties providing business for independent prisons and so on. This is a wicked concept. Mm. You know, as I listen to you say these things and I think back about uh, the history of this country, have you seen why this has happened? Has there been a thread that has been growing and growing and growing? When did it start and how on earth, Lincoln, can we do anything to mitigate it? Well, I, th I think we're all part of the whole and, and uh, public attitudes, citizen attitudes filter into how the, the general laws are applied. I made a statement recently in commenting on police brutality and, and in particular in, in, in the historical context of the uh, 1968 Democratic Convention when the police viciously beat college students and others who were no imminent threat to them, but right. the violence was all out of proportion, that it's not that the police were worse then than now or that they're the same necessarily. All sorts of public officials and police are very much a visible form of the government. They pick their cues up from those on high and what they think society uh, expects. Okay. If the message gets through to government that it's okay, acceptable, or perhaps even wanted by the constituency to uh, deprive prisoners of their, their reasonable rights to round up different elements of, of the population, citizen or otherwise, for uh, perceived abuses by the whole group, mm -hmm. then it will continue and perhaps even get worse. And, you know, this is not Nazi Germany, not even close, but the models of Nazi Germany can easily be repeated because there were roundups for years before uh, it was obvious to the outside world that there were death camps and so on. But people knew about these things, but it suited them because they were the types of people that they thought society was better off without, you know, the immoral, the, the transvestites, the mental and moral degenerates and so on, the gypsies. They knew that there were programs to deal with these and it didn't trouble them greatly or if it did, they just murmured to themselves. I think we need to keep our corporate conscience fresh and operative by uh, reacting to these things that at the very least are overreach where the, the action is where the proportion to the situation. You know, the prisoner, he may have been uh, uncooperative or whatever. That doesn't mean that he should be then deprived of the basic right of spiritual uh, practice that is in the Constitution and in international mandates as well. Illegals coming here, for whatever reason, they need to be treated as human beings that have transgressed basic laws of entry but they're not criminals. Right. But then to criminalize it by things that they of necessity have done once they're here is to miss the whole point. And you could make a, a, an economic argument that their economic function has contributed as well as uh, withheld, but they're sort of cast 
and in the new terminology of consumers, not producers. Yes, yes, yes. Well, then we have 60 seconds left here. Lincoln, is it possible or is it, is it good for us to think that this can change if we have a different type of attitude in Washington when it comes to these people? Are we, you, you, you sort of hinted that we're following someone's lead here. Can that lead be changed and we then as a country change our attitude toward these people? Well, we, we have to hope and believe that because the United States is a republic. Yes. The power resides in the people, right. not in any form of government. The government should be a reflection of the people's attitude, and our attitude needs to be, since we're nominally a Christian society, not a government, right. we need to show Christian charity in all things. All right, very good. We the people. I keep hearing that over and over in my mind when I talk to you. Lincoln Steed, editor of Liberty Magazine. LibertyMagazine.org is the website. Check it out. And until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Lincoln Steed inviting you to rest in the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about LifeQuest Liberty, call 443-391-7258 or email us through our website at libertymagazine.org. Join us again next week at the same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of liberty burning in your heart today. <laughs>